Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to, the, up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take a f the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, we're going to get our whole study tonight just from these verses. This seems like a fun and simple little section, but as you're going to hopefully see tonight, there is a lot being covered here, and we'll try to unpack most of it tonight. Now, this two drachma temple tax that's being referenced here uh, was actually collected each year from every Jewish male over 20 years old, and it was for the upkeep of the temple. It added up to about two days wages. Uh, it's also called a half a shekel. So it's a two drachma tax or a half a shekel tax. It adapted about two days wages and it was for every male, a Jewish male over 20 years old to help with the upkeep of the temple. Now, go with me to Exodus chapter 30 and I'm going to show you a couple of passages in scripture that reference this tax. Deut uh, Exodus chapter 30 verses 11 through 17. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 11, it says, The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekels of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Jump over real quick to 2 Chronicles chapter 24. We'll see it mentioned one more time in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 4 through 14. In 2 Chronicles chapter 24, starting in verse 4, the scripture says, After this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. And he gathered the priests and the Levites, and he said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year, and see that you act quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief, and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, in the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? For the sons of Atila, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. So the king commanded and they made a chest and they set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. And proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought their tax and dropped it into the chest until they had finished. And whenever the chest was brought to the king's officers by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer and the chief priest would come and empty the chest and take it and return it to its place. 
This, thus they did day after day and collected money in abundance. And the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who had charge of the work of the house of the Lord. And they hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. So those who were engaged in the work labored and the repairing went forward in their hands and they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada with it. Uh, sorry, Jehoiada, and with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, both for the service and for the burnt offerings and dishes for incense and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly all the days of Jehoiada. So here we saw back in Exodus 30 that God through Moses had this tax levied on every male over 20. And it was to be given once a year for the service of the temple, taking care of the temple. And as you saw, they went away from it for a while. The temple fell into disrepute and, and disrepair. And Joash and, uh, got this going again, and they collected it, and they used it to repair the temple. Now, these tax collectors were not collecting for Rome like the, Matthew used to. Remember, Matthew was a Jew who was collecting for the Romans. They weren't collecting for Rome. They were collecting for Jewish, uh, from Jewish men according to the nation of Israel and them only. And so that's what this tax was. So these men came to Peter and they asked if Jesus was paying the temple tax. Now, they most likely were curious as to Jesus' attitude toward the temple and the worship of God, since rumor had been spreading that he would destroy the temple. That's what I want to do is kind of show you from the scriptures here how Jesus had said some things about destroying the temple. As you're about to see, he's meaning his body. But now people are starting to question a little bit whether or not he's really pro-temple in worship of God. So they come and they say, does your master pay the temple tax? Go to John chapter 2. We'll see where this miscommunication began. In John chapter 2, look at verses 13 through 22. In John chapter 2, verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling moxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus in the temple said, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Well, people start whispering. That's how rumors get started. A little bit of misinformation. And they start saying that he's going to destroy the temple. Go to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, look at verses 5 and 6. All right, Matthew chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 says this. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
And, and actually, we'll, I started in verse six. Let's back up to verse five. All right. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. So here what Jesus is doing is he's teaching that he's greater than the temple. And with the fact that he's already been heard saying that destroy this temple, he meant his body, but they thought he was going to destroy the temple. And he thinks he's greater than the temple in their minds. And he is because he's what the temple represents, the worship of the true God. And he is true God. Word spreading, rumors spreading that this teacher, this prophet, this rabbi might not be pro-temple. Let me give you one more passage. Go to Matthew 26. You'll see this come out in Jesus's trial. In Matthew 26, look at verses 57 through 61. Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. Grab my reading glasses. As you could see, I'm starting to have trouble seeing the numbers here. Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him up to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two men came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So here we see the word had spread that Jesus had said that he was going to destroy the temple. That wasn't what he was saying at all. He was saying if you destroy this temple and raise it in three days, he was referring to his body and how he was going to be put to death and three days later rise again. But again, the way that Satan works and the way the rumors started, questions started to arise whether Jesus was pro-temple in the worship of God in the temple. And he said that he was greater than the temple. He would destroy the temple. And so they come to Peter and they say, does your master pay the temple tax, which was given by Moses to keep upkeep of the temple? Now, Peter tells them that Jesus does pay the tax. Although I'm not so sure he really knew. As you kind of read this story, it doesn't read like Peter knows. It's almost like he wants him to look good in front of these guys. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah. But when Peter arrives at the house where Jesus was, notice how the scripture shows us that Jesus brings up the subject of this conversation that Peter had just had before Peter even mentions it. Look over again at verse 25. And in chapter 17 of Matthew, verse 25, look at what it says. It says, and he he, Jesus, I mean, Peter says yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? So let me say this to you tonight. Jesus knows everything. He knows whatever happens to us. He knows many times what has happened. And he's going to use those experiences to teach us. Don't think for a second that God doesn't know what's going on to you, going on in your life or happening to you. Some people a lot of times say, where's God? Does he even know? Oh, folks, you don't understand the scriptures. There's nowhere you can go that he's not there. There's nothing that happens that he doesn't know. The Bible says that he knows the number of hairs on your head. The Bible says he keeps your tears in a jar. There's nothing that he doesn't know. Go to Psalm 139 with me. Go to Psalm 139. Look what David says here. In Psalm 139, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read to verse 18, and then we're going to jump to the end of the chapter. Psalm 139, 
starting in verse 1. David writes and he says this. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain it. I, don't, I, I can't grasp it, he says. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I free from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I got to stop. As I read that, I can't think of anything but Jonah. He said, when he sunk into the bottom of the sea, God was there and knew what was happening to him and provided that fish. Even if I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, everything that was going to happen to me was already in your mind before I was even born. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, and if I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. Now jump down to verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of understanding or everlasting. Listen, I'm going to say it to you again. Jesus knows whatever happens to us, and many times, if not all times, he will use our life experiences to teach us. And that's what's going on here in this situation. Peter's confronted by these guys. Does your master pay the temple tax? Peter's like, oh, yeah, 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 he does. And when Peter shows up, he doesn't even reference what happened. He doesn't even ask Jesus, hey, do you pay the temple tax? These guys asked me. Before he could say anything, Jesus began the conversation so knowing already before Peter could say anything all about the tax conversation, Jesus asks Peter a question. He asks him, from whom do the kings of the earth collect taxes? From their sons or the children, their own children, or from others? Strangers, if you will. Peter answers correctly and says, well, others, meaning not from their own sons. And Jesus says, in essence, you're right. So the sons are free, meaning they don't have to pay that tax that the king had over his kingdom. Now, please don't hear me say that we're not supposed to pay taxes. I'm going to show you scripture says that we, we do. But what I want you to hear, and this is what we're getting out of this passage is, Jesus is illustrating to Peter that the sons of the king weren't under the same regulations of the ones who weren't sons of the king. The, the king ruled over those subjects who had no relationship with him, but the children, the relationship was different with the king. The children had a relationship with the king that the rest of the others didn't have. 
In other words, the children of the king are not bound by the laws that the king has. They relate to the king through their family relationship, not as loyal, obedient subjects under the king's laws. And so it is with us who have become children of, the, of God, children of the king of kings, children of the king of the universe. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we become children of God. And now we're no longer under the law that God has laid out for the world. And again, if you've been following along in our study of the scriptures, why did he send the law? To reveal our sin, to show us our sin and our need of a savior. That's the whole purpose of the law. But once you realize you can't keep God's law and you try to be right in God's eyes by following his law and you realize I can't do it. That's when you say I need help from somewhere else. And that's when he opens your eyes to who Jesus is and what he's done. And when you believe that what Jesus did by keeping the law perfectly, dying in your place, rising from the dead. When you believe this by faith and you receive Jesus as your savior, as your atonement, as your substitute for your sin in your life and you take your sin and have it placed on him he gives you his righteousness listen and you become a child of God you become a child of the king and now God is no longer looking at you and I according to whether we're keeping his rules we have a new relationship with the king and it's because of our sonship let me just let the scripture show you what I'm talking about go to John chapter 1 John chapter 1 Verses 1 through 4, and then verse 14, and then we're going to jump back to verse 9. We're going to jump around in chapter 1. Go to John chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to read verse 14. In the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now jump down to verse 14. That word that made everything that's been in the beginning with God and was God and is God. The word, verse 14 of John chapter 1, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now jump back up to verse 9. Look at verse 9, verses 9 through 13. It says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's Jesus. He was also in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the Bible says when you believe in Jesus, who is God, that he became man, took on flesh, was put to death in your place and mine. When believe he rose from the dead and you give him your life, you become a child of God. Go to Romans chapter, or in John, go to John chapter 8 real quick. Go to John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36, and then we'll go to Romans 8. John 8, 31 through 36. In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Keep that in mind. The truth is set us free. Keep that in mind. Go to Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, the scripture says this. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That means Daddy, 
Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So here we see already now that the Scripture teaches that when you believe in Jesus and you receive Him as your Savior, God makes you His child by His Spirit coming to indwell you and you are set free. But go to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read Galatians 4 first and then we're going to jump back to Galatians chapter 3 and we'll kind of put this together. Now I'm laying a foundation for you tonight scripturally that will help us pull a deep subject out of our story of Peter and the tax and the fish. We're going to get to that. So to Galatians chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 7. It says, Paul's explaining about our relationship with God now as opposed to the law. He says, I mean that, as, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see it? When the time comes that the father says, now you receive the full rights of your childhood and being my child, we were that way until Jesus came and made it possible. And now that he has, we are children of the king. The rules and the regulations that the father has set, that the world is being governed by, doesn't really apply to us now. We have a different relationship. Oh, don't hear me wrong. You're going to see tonight that God wants us to live according to his desire and according to his will and according to his law. But we're not being judged by whether we keep his law we're judged by whether or not we have a relationship with him. And because we're his children, how he deals with everyone who's not his child is not how he deals with those who are his children. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. Look at verses 15 through 29. In Galatians 3, 15, Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after Abraham had been given this promise, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law is our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. 
There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, I shared all this with you to lay this foundation. Jesus says to Peter, do the kings of the earth make their subjects or their children follow the rules? Well, the subjects, right. Their children are free. They don't tax their own kids. They tax everyone else. The sons are free. Those who have a relationship with the king are not out under the laws now of the king. In that way, they now have a relationship with the king. We who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ are not being judged under the law. How many Christians today, unfortunately, get up every day and look at yesterday and say, well, I didn't do so good in God's rules yesterday. God's not looking at you that way. He's not keeping track of whether or not you're keeping his law or not. He sees you in a different way. Does he want you to obey his law? Of course. His law is good and it's holy and it's righteous. It's not a bad thing. But its purpose is to show you you can't keep it so that you would enter into a relationship with him through faith in Jesus. And now, by living in a spirit-led, remember Romans chapter 8, verse 14, those who are led to the spirit of God are the sons of God. Daily, we now live in obedience to God's law, not because we have to keep the law, but because we have a different relationship and we're his children and we love him and we want him to be pleased. And so we just walk in obedience as he gives us the ability through himself. Now, with that all said, Jesus does something that surprises us. He's just said to Peter, go back to Matthew chapter 17. He says, so the sons are free. When, in verse 26, when Peter said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take it and give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus says, so that we won't, you're in a relationship now with the king of the, the temple. You're in a relationship now that it's not really about the rules and the regulations as much. You kind of don't have to pay the temple tax because you have a different relationship now. You, before you were just a subject, but now you've entered in a relationship. It's not really about that temple tax. But you know what? So that we won't give offense to them. Why don't you just go pay your tax and mine? We'll get to how Jesus provides the money in a little bit in our study. But I want to point out something. How many of you have already had this thought hit your mind from two chapters ago? Back in chapter 15. Go back to chapter 15, verses 10 through 14. Remember, Jesus says, so not to give offense, let's just go pay the tax. Back in chapter 15, look at verses 10 through 14. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 10, it says, And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand, it's not what goes in the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So in other words, the disciples come and they say, Don't you realize what you just said offended the Pharisees? He says, in essence, who cares? I'm not worried about offending them. Actually, what I said should be offensive to them. Yet now, in chapter 17, we see here, he says, in verse 27, however, not to give offense, go pay our tax. Even though you don't have to pay that tax, go pay it. What's going on? Why is he not worried about offending in chapter 15, but now he's worried about offending? Well, here's a, a very important study that we're going to go on in the time we have tonight 
to learn the balance of how to live out our freedom by knowing when to offend and when not to offend. We should never, ever soften the truth of our message when it comes to the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that there's only one way to be righteous before God, and that's by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Oh, and not by anything we do. And by the way, that's offensive to people's flesh, and we should never stop preaching that because of its offensiveness. As you're going to see, and I'm going to show you from the scriptures, when it comes to the gospel, we should know that it's going to offend people, and we should never soften the gospel to worry about whether it offends somebody. When Jesus was saying, look, it's not what goes in, but that makes you impure, but what comes out. He's talking about their sin problem and their need of a savior. And they were offended by that. And he said, it's okay. I don't care because they need to know they're a sinner. They need to know that they need a savior. And when it comes to the gospel of that, there's only one way to be saved. And that's by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And it's not by anything we do, but totally by God's gift through what Jesus did on the cross. Let me tell you, the world will be offended because the world wants credit for what they do. They want to earn their way to heaven. They will think they can be good enough. And the flesh wants credit. The gospel is offensive. And don't worry about that. It's going to offend them. Never soften on that. Yet... Let me just say this to you. Well, go to Galatians chapter 5. We'll go back to the book of Galatians a little bit here and, and, and see what Paul says about this. In Galatians chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 11. You know that in John chapter 14, verse 6, the scripture says that there, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. You also know that in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter's preaching and he says, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, Jesus Christ. So that's going to offend people. Never soften on that. Don't worry if it offends them. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, to kind of set a stage... Paul's writing this book to a group of people that had been taught that, yeah, you believe in Jesus, but you also got to keep the law. You got to be circumcised. You got to do good things. You got to follow the law of Moses. And unfortunately, a lot of our churches today are teaching that you believe in what Jesus did, but you got to do your penance and you got to keep your rituals and you got to do these things. And they're teaching you that it's you and God working together to save you. And that's not what the gospel says. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Did you hear what Paul said? He said, look, I already taught you your salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Anybody that comes in and says, yeah, but you got to do these things too, or else you're not going to be pleasing to God, they don't get it. You want to be pleasing to God? You put faith in his son. But what about the law? 
it will automatically be taken care of as the Spirit of God, and you learn how to let Him have control. You start obeying what God says, but it's no longer because I'm trying to keep the law. It's because I'm in a different relationship with the Father, the King, because He is my Father. But in this same section of Galatians, Paul now brings out, right after where we just were, he brings out that we need to be careful in other areas not to hurt people because of our freedom. In other words, he says, for freedom, you've been set free. You're no longer being judged by whether or not you keep the law. You've been set free in Christ. Now he goes in the same chapter. Look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. In other words, Paul says, stand firm in the freedom you have. When people try to say you're saved by Jesus and something else you do, stand firm in your freedom. You're set free through faith alone in Jesus Christ. You don't have to keep the law. But don't use your freedom now as a child of the king to say, I get to live however I want and not be concerned about how other people are going to be offended by you using your freedom. This is where we're going to go tonight. Even though we're God's free children now, through faith in Christ, we don't use our freedom to live for ourselves, but we in many ways are to lay down our rights in order not to offend people and to let them know that we love them so that they may be saved too and become free children of God like we are. In other words, the scripture teaches that we who are free in Christ aren't to use our freedom to just live for ourselves now and not care about anybody else. There are going to be times that even though we are free to live however God has given us peace to do so, there are going to be times that living that way would offend somebody to the point that they wouldn't know that we love them and they wouldn't respond to the message of the gospel that we want them to hear from us. Did Jesus have to pay the temple tax? He's the king. He's the king of the temple. And his children aren't under that regulation. They have a different relationship. But not everybody fully understood that. And it's not a salvation issue. So he said, so we don't offend anybody. Here, go pay the tax. That'll let them know we're pro-temple. We're pro-worship of God. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul talks about this in great detail in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're only going to look at a few places. I'll reference a couple others. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 13. Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't know yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called small g gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many small g gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom we exist." of whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all people understand this, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? 
if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus you're sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So here what Paul says is, if those of you that don't understand, back in that day, there were a lot of idols and a lot of temples to idols and people would offer their sacrifices. And then they'd go sell that meat in the market. They would have meat that was offered to these idols. It was cheaper, already cooked. Talk about fast food. That's their first fast food right there. And some of the Christians knew, yeah, this was offered to an idol, but there's really only one God. I don't mind eating that. I don't have any problem. I'm free. I'm not under a law. I'm not closer to God if I eat things or further away if I don't eat or anything like that. And so they were free. They understood. I'm right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But there were others who were like, yeah, but that meat was offered to an idol and, and it's caused them a problem. And Paul said, I have the freedom to eat that meat. But if it's going to cause my brother a problem, I won't. Folks, I could go down this road when it comes to alcohol. I could show you scripturally how the Bible says that God's the one who made the grape that makes men glad. The Bible says, do not get drunk. But at the same time, drinking of alcohol is in the Bible. But you know what? Because of all the problems that it has caused and all the damage that is done and because of the role God's called me to, to be a public figure in the church, I, for, my, for, for the sake of the gospel, laid down my rights. I don't drink. I, I stayed away from it my whole life. Why? Because even though I could win an argument and have knowledge that puffs up, I would do damage to my brother by drinking if it really causes them problem. And therefore, I sin against Christ when I hurt my brother by using my freedom. Oh, when it comes to the gospel, I don't care if you're offended. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through faith alone in Jesus Christ and nothing about yourself. But when it comes to the other things, I'm willing to lay my rights down so that you're not offended, so that you'll know that I love you and you'll hear the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verses 23 through 33. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, Paul says, All things are lawful, because we're not under the law anymore. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty, my freedom be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Therefore, so whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that many, but that of many, that they may be saved. In other words, Paul says, look, when it comes to this meat thing, if someone who's an unbeliever invites you and you, they serve it, eat it. But if someone says, this was offered to an idol, then stay away from it, because it's obvious it's given them a little pause, and I don't want to cause you a problem. So just, you're free to eat it, but you don't have to. We are, as, as Christians, listen closely, are not to take advantage of all the rights that we have as children now for the sake of ourselves. We're to be willing to lay them down 
for the sake of the people around us. I'm not going to have you read that now, but later on, if you would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul explained that even though scripturally he had the right to get his income from preaching the gospel, he laid down that right and earned his own pay by tent making in order not to offend people who were told that Paul was preaching only for the money. He had rights and freedom to use those rights, but he laid them down so that people would see his true heart and hear the gospel. The scripture is very clear that the preachers are supposed to get their income from preaching the gospel. Don't muzzle the ox. And Paul said, look, God wasn't talking about the ox. He was talking about preachers. At the same time, Paul said, but because some people may think that I'm in it for the money, in this instance, I'm going to lay that right down and I'm going to raise my own money. And he was willing to lay his rights down. He's a free child of God, but he laid his rights down so as not to give an offense. Anyone who uses their freedom in Christ to live for self doesn't understand that we live out our freedom by loving others. Let me say this to you again. Anyone who uses their freedom in Christ to live for self doesn't understand that we are to live out our freedom by loving others. Go to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, look at verses 8 through 10. In Romans 13, starting in verse 8, it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves, one another, loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet. And other commandment, any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 6. Galatians chapter 5, just one verse. Verse 6, we read it earlier. Galatians 5, 6 says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Go to Philippians chapter 2. You're in Galatians. Turn over a couple of books to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 4. Paul says, so if there's any, you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of of others. Aren't we free as children of God? Yes, we are. Praise God we're not under the law. Praise God he's not judging whether or not I'm keeping his law. He has looked at me now as his child and he's working on me and he's doing his work and he's making me into what he wants me to be. But it's no longer on the basis of whether or not I've done good and checked the boxes. I'm free. Thank God I'm free. But I'm not to use that freedom now as a spoiled rich kid and act like everybody else has to take care of me because I'm a child of the king. I've heard that too often. Paul showed this balance being lived out with how he handled Titus and Timothy. We show our love for people by never softening on the exclusivity of the gospel. But if it's a non-salvation issue, we may lay down our freedom. Now, I'm going to give you two passages of scripture. I'm going to have you go look at them yourself. Time-wise, we don't have time tonight for me to read these to you. So I want to just kind of give them to you, and I want you to, I'm going to explain them, but you go read them. So here's the first one I want you to write down. Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. In this situation, he talked about the fact that Titus was a Gentile, 
And he didn't have Titus get circumcised to show them that salvation was by faith alone, not by circumcision. And he wanted to make that very, very clear. And so if he had Titus circumcised, they would have thought that he was being circumcised in order to be saved. Paul said, I don't want them to misunderstand the gospel. This may offend some people, but we're not having Titus circumcised. He's a Gentile, but he doesn't have to be circumcised. Yet if you read in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, go look at that later on. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, you'll see that when Paul takes Timothy with him on the missionary journeys, Paul's, sorry, Timothy's mama is a Jew, but his daddy's a Greek. His daddy's a Gentile. And the Jews that Paul was trying to reach for the gospel knew that this guy had a Gentile daddy and probably wasn't circumcised. So Paul has Timothy circumcised. Why? Because it's not a salvation issue. In this instance, it was just so he was going to be going into temples and into synagogues. And he didn't want anybody being bothered by that. He wanted them to hear the gospel. And so they weren't thinking that Timothy was being circumcised in order to be saved. These people weren't believers. They weren't the church. When it came to the church in Galatians chapter uh, 2, we see that when Paul brought Timothy before the church, he didn't have him circumcised because he didn't have to be circumcised to join the church. But as Paul was going to preach to the Jews in the synagogues and in the temples, he didn't want them to be offended that a Gentile, uncircumcised Gentile was coming in. And so his mama was a Jew and he had him circumcised so that he would go in and he wouldn't offend them so they would hear the gospel. Do you see the balance? You got to prayerfully let the Spirit of God show you. In this instance, yeah, they're going to be offended, but it's a gospel issue. Don't ever soften. And all the others, let the Spirit of God show you. Do I live my freedom here or do I lay it aside so they won't take offense? And we see Jesus in Matthew 15 not care if they're offended because it's a gospel issue. But in chapter 17, even though the disciples were children of the king because of their faith. Remember, Peter has already made his profession of his faith in Matthew 16. He's become a child of God. Flesh and blood hadn't opened his eyes, but his father has opened his eyes. His name had been changed. He's now a child of the king, and he's not under that temple tax anymore. But, so they wouldn't give offense, it's not a salvation issue. Let's go ahead and lay our rights down, pay the tax, so that we don't cause any problems, so they'll hear what we have to say when it comes to the gospel. This is why we... As free children of the true King, God Almighty, willingly humble ourselves and submit to our governing authorities here on the earth. We want them to come to know Christ, not see us as a bunch of selfish, rebellious jerks. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to show you from Scripture. We as children of the King have freedom. But we would be wrong as Christians in this world to say our God is the one in charge. We're the, he's the king. We're not going to do what anybody says. But what he said, listen, the only time in Scripture we see where they said, well, look, you decide whether we listen to God or listen to man was when they were telling him they can't preach the gospel anymore. They can't preach in this name, Jesus, anymore. And they looked at him and said, yeah, you may be offended by this, but you decide. Should we listen to God or should we listen to man? God's told us to preach the gospel and never soften on this issue. Therefore, we're not going to listen to you in this matter. But the scripture says in all the other areas, we're to submit ourselves to the governing authorities. But we're children of the king. We're free. Oh, we lay those freedoms down for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel so that they'll know we love them and we want them to hear the message. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 11. And we're laying that down not to the other 
side of the human argument. We're laying it that's down. A person. To right. Yes, and that's Chris has just brought up a great point. We're laying it down, not to the side of the other human argument. We're laying it down to Christ. We're laying our rights down to God. We're not laying down before the other people. We're laying our rights down before God. All right, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness of then the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to, you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. We as Christians are to live gently in front of the world. We're not to be argumentative and try to win the argument. Remember we just saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that knowledge puffs up, loves what builds up. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, we're free children of the king, but we don't use our freedom to do damage. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or for, to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. See that? Again, in this time that we are under governing authorities in this world, we in the church, praise God, are exempt from these regulations. But at the same time, Wisely and prayerfully, many churches are still submitting themselves to the regulations to show the world and to our governing authorities we're not selfish jerks who live for ourselves and say, we don't care, we're children of the king. No, we humble ourselves. And the only way we will ever stand up against the government and say no is if you tell us we can't preach about Jesus anymore. We can't say this is the word of God. Or we can't say that every word in here is true. When it comes to the salvation issue, when it comes to the gospel, we're going to preach it whether you like it or not. But in all the other areas, on how close we're to stand when we're here or there, you know what? We could win the argument. We could show you from Scripture, but you might not understand. And we want you to know that we love you. That you need to know who God is, and He loves you, and He sent His Son to die for you. And we as Christians lay down our rights in submission to the Father. Go to Romans chapter 13. Look at verses 1 through 7. By the way, all this is coming out of that, does Jesus pay the temple tax? Isn't that crazy? 
some of you are saying, are you going to have time to get to the fish? We will. Hang on. We're going to get there. We've got a few minutes left. Romans 13, look at verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good. And you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain, for he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. See that? For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what's owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So folks, I hope you hear this. Jesus was not bothered by the fact that he offended the Pharisees when it was a salvation issue. When it came to them being able to understand that he was for them and he loved God and he loved the temple... Let's not offend them. We could win the argument, but let's just pay the tax. Pay the temple tax, even though you're free, Peter. Go ahead. Pay yours and mine. Now, in having Peter pay the temple tax for both of them, Jesus was wanting to be an example of someone who honored worship in the temple and demonstrated obedience to God's law. By the way, have you ever really thought about it? Do you understand Jesus' baptism was the same thing? Did Jesus need to be baptized? Was he repenting of his sins? No. He was being an example and he humbled himself and he submitted to the regulations. And John the Baptist even said, I, you need to be baptizing me, not you, me, you. And he said, let it be so for now to fulfill all righteousness. In the same way, Jesus says to Peter, let's not bother causing a hubbub. Let's just go pay the tax, even though we're free not to have to pay that one. Now, the last part of the story, I think, is the coolest part. In coming up with the money for the temple tax, Jesus tells Peter to go throw a fishing line into the water. And in the first fish that you catch his mouth will be a shekel. Use that to pay your tax in mind. Remember, this, the tax was a half a shekel per person. He says to Peter, you go open that first fish you catch his mouth. There'll be a whole shekel. That's enough for yours and mine. You go pay your and my tax. By the way, if you've ever looked at the scriptures, this is the only time you see fishing being done with a fishing line and a hook. All the other times they're casting nets. But in this one instance, so that they would know this isn't chance and it didn't just happen to hit a lucky area. Or by chance, maybe that one fish that's got the coin in its mouth got in the net. Jesus is showing Peter his full knowledge of the whole universe his full control of everything. He knew who dropped that coin. He knew which fish picked it up and put it in its mouth and couldn't get it swallowed, but didn't want to let it go. It's kind of like, remember when your kids were little and you told them to finish their food and they wouldn't and they held it in the mouth for a while? The fish did. And Peter throws a fish in line with a hook in and the first fish he pulls out, there's a coin. And it's enough for his tax and Jesus's. Exactly enough. I love that. Now, in this case, we also see that if we're willing to lay down our rights as free children of God and not live for ourselves, but to think of others and to love others and to be generous to others, as the Bible says, 
God will give us whatever we need to do whatever it is he asks us to do. I want you to hear that. If you're willing to do what God asked you to do, he will provide it. Too often, Ellen, this, I don't have time to get into this because this is one of my pet peeves, if you will, as a traveling preacher, as I go to help churches get woke back up to back to the Bible and walking in the spirit and what it means to trust the Lord. Too often, if we heard churches say, well, God wants us to do that. How are we going to come up with the money? Oh, we want, I know we're supposed to hire this person as a staff member, but we don't have enough money. Listen to me, folks. The Bible says all the way through that if God's asked you to do it, he will provide the resources. And the many of you, if you think back over your life and he's been teaching you these situations over and over. I remember what our our truck payment was back when Becky and I were first married. In our first years of marriage, we had a brand new pickup truck, an Isuzu pup, and we were paying $183.61 a month. That was the truck payment. $183.61. How do I remember this 30 years ago when I don't remember what happened this morning? God, every single month, would do a miracle. And sometimes it was to the penny. The amount we needed to come up with that truck payment was there. And he was showing us, I'm in control. And everything I have for you to do, I will provide. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. Here he's talking about giving and being generous. And by the way, I've heard stories around the country of people's been, their giving at their churches have been more than normal. Praise God. That means you guys are really walking in the spirit and his freedom that you have is being lived out because you're not worried about taking care of yourself. And God is blessing and glorifying, blessing others and glorifying himself through you. In 2 Corinthians 9, listen to verses 6 through 13. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he is decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Remember, we're not under a law. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He is distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Listen, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God by their approval of this service. They're going to glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. In other words, here the scripture says, whatever it is he asks you to do, when you trust him and give, he provides and he'll give you more and more and more. Folks, I'm going to give you two more passages to write down because our time's out for the night. Two passages to write down. Go to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, and Acts 4, 32 through 37. Acts 2, 42 through 47, and Acts 4, 32 through 37. And you will see that the early church... Were, they just were generous. They shared whatever they had in common. They gave. They were selling property and giving it to people in need and, and, and giving the money to people in need. They, they so trusted God. I put it in my notes. Are we under the law and are giving to the church and to others? No. But we don't live for ourselves anymore. As loved, blessed, and fully provided for children of, of the king, we're generous with others and willing to share with others and glad to show God's love through our giving. Again, 
Stop looking at your Christian life according to the law. You're a child of the king and you're set free. Don't use that freedom now to live for yourself. Use that freedom to love others. I love you, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. We'll see you then.